Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. The oldest artificial object orbiting the Earth is not Sputnik. This Soviet satellite burned up a few months after it was launched. It's actually an American satellite named Vanguard 1. It might also surprise you that it was designed and built not by NASA, but by the Naval Research Laboratory. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, I speak with Angelina Callahan about the Vanguard project. While Vanguard 1 was driven by Cold War competition, it was also a lot more than that. A scientific platform for understanding the space environment and a test vehicle for satellites to come. Callahan is the Naval Research Laboratory historian. She is the co-author of the book NASA in the World, 50 Years of International Collaboration in Space. Angelina Callahan, thanks for talking with me today. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about Vanguard, I was wondering if you could bring us back to 1955. This is the year, as I understand it, that the Naval Research Laboratory proposes a U.S. satellite project to the U.S. government as a part of the International Geophysical Year. Why would International Geophysical Year be interested in satellites to begin with? Well, the larger the larger deciding mechanism behind this was the fact that the Eisenhower White House recognized the value of eventually launching reconnaissance satellites, and they made the conscious decision that it would be in the best interest, in the best strategic interest, to first launch scientific satellites to prove the value of peaceful overflight at this at this new altitude. That, that the notion that that national sovereignty does not extend up into space, and so this was this was sort of the catalyst that unleashed the amount of money that was necessary to get this first prototype scientific satellite system off of the ground in 1955. Uh huh. And at this time, interest in the upper regions of the atmosphere that that had existed since before World War Two. Is that correct? 
Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, as early as the 1920s, the US Navy had been using high frequency radio systems that were affected by the Earth's ionosphere, which means space weather. Sometimes, uh, sometimes that was useful, for instance, if you wanted radio signal to be reflected beyond the horizon, the ionosphere would reflect it back to Earth. And sometimes it would travel hundreds of miles, sometimes it would even circle the Earth. Um, so World War II and Cold War navigation systems and communication systems and methods of tracking enemy submarines relied on a sophisticated understanding of the ionosphere to operate better, both for more extensive communication, but also more secure communication. Is it something about the project of the Navy or the conditions under which the Navy operates that would make it the most logical candidate for a satellite program? Because I think probably a lot of listeners are wondering, the Navy, really? Why are they the ones winning the, you know, winning the case to send up a satellite? Well, uh, that decision, the decision for NRL to be the responsible body for the United States' first scientific satellite system was actually based on a competition ostensibly among three different satellite proposals. And mm-hmm. the first and best known satellite proposal was put forth by Werner von Braun from the Army Ballistic Missile Agency. And his philosophy behind launching a satellite for the International Geophysical Year was get it up as quickly as possible because he recognized the propaganda value of this and do it as cheaply as possible so that you could prove that this was easy to achieve. And Basically, little after that, he had little interest in more sophisticated uh, tracking systems. He wasn't that concerned with engaging with the scientific communities to have various scientific payloads put on. This was his first orbiter proposal. And and Uh so that was the first proposal that was put forth for the International Geophysical Year. And what happened was the Office of Naval Research, which was one of the prime sponsors for the IGY satellite program, came to their lab, the Naval Research Lab, and they said, what do you think of this proposal? And the NRL researchers looked at it and they said, well, it's, it's, it's pretty viable. But you, basically, they said, you can do a whole lot more if you're going to be funding a scientific satellite for the International Geophysical Year. They came back. And due to their experience with sounding rocket research over the last 10 years, they provided a much more extensive proposal for a satellite tracking network that extended across the United States and through Central America and down into South America so that they could more precisely track satellites in all weather. And they had uh, scientific payloads that they had experience with from sounding rockets and such. So, you know, uh, one of the things I find interesting about your writing on this is that I think so many of us who look at Cold War science, or just even really the Cold War era uh, in general, tend to think of everything through that lens of, okay, there's there's some kind of strategic uh, military interest in this project that's being camouflaged by whatever else it is, uh, science or sports or something. And you make the case that, well, no, the scientific interest in the ionosphere is is real. And this project uh, was a serious attempt to get some of that work done. So if you don't mind me getting into the weeds a little bit here, a lot of us know from probably from like middle school that the ionosphere bounces radio signals, but it's more complicated than that, right? I mean, this ionosphere thing was pretty difficult to figure out, right? What made it so important, I guess, as a, as a subject of study? Uh, well, in 1955, they had not yet even sorted out 
what natural processes created the ionosphere. It was a huge, it was a huge shock just to learn the full breadth of the sun's radiative output. And so there are many variables behind the ionosphere's fluctuation. It reconstitutes itself sometimes multiple times during the day, um, over the course of seasons, whether you're on the nighttime or the daytime side of the Earth, and then you have the 11-year solar cycle that's also impacting the way that the, the ionosphere can reflect radio waves. And so a lot of people, people will use the shorthand of talking about you know, like reflecting radio waves, but in fact, it actually distorts radio waves. And sometimes it changes the polarity of radio waves, or it can change the amplitude of radio waves. Mm-hmm. And as radio systems are getting increasingly sophisticated, and as you have different kinds of navigation or reconnaissance or communication systems, small alterations can have a big impact on what you're doing. Yeah, when I was I was reading your work on, um, on Vanguard and I was realizing that, uh, of course, I didn't know any of this about the ionosphere, but it, it almost seems like it's kind of a part of two weather systems, right? It's a part of the Earth, but it's also affected so much by solar radiation and all these other things. It, it seems like uh, it would be extremely complex, and yet also, as you were pointing out, vital for radio communication, right? They did have, um, was it low-frequency ways of communicating? What, what was wrong with the ways that people were communicating with radio prior to uh, these experiments? Actually, let me back up. I do want to add one thing. Yeah. Um, as far as the ionosphere is concerned, this is, a, this is a bleeding edge problem that the lab is dealing with to this day. And you just touched on the fact that the ionosphere, you know, because it, it fluctuates between being as close as, you know, 50 miles altitude from the Earth to being, you know, 700 miles altitude from the Earth. This is something that is operating on the boundary between what we perceive as weather on Earth and what we call space weather, kind of loosely. And so this is something that the lab is still working on to this day because they need to figure out the forcing relationship on both sides, or as the ionosphere is also impacting Earth's weather. Wow. So in 1955, NRL gets uh, essentially approval to work on Vanguard. And then in 57, October 57, the Soviet Union launches Sputnik. What happens then? How does this change the kind of U.S. satellite program? Vanguard is not being treated as a national priority crash program in the interest of a space race. Their concern is producing a viable system that will perform Uh well. And when Sputnik is first launched in October of 1957, this comes as a surprise to the broader communities, but it's not a total shock to the Vanguard professionals who've been operating in this international network for quite some time. They know that the Soviets had announced that they were eventually going to launch an IGY satellite. They never gave a clear indication of when it would happen. There was an announcement a few days before its launch saying that their launch was, uh, I think the, the translation was impending or something like that. What is important is that on August 21, weeks before the launch of Sputnik, the Soviets do launch an R-7, which was the launch vehicle that was used for Sputnik in a test fire. And this does raise concern among Uh some in the DoD communities who recognize the, the, the utility of that for launching satellites. So Sputnik goes up and Vanguard, which, as you were saying before, is really being developed not as a let's get their first project, but a a real scientific project to study the ionosphere. Is there pressure at that point to, I don't know, get something up quick? 
Absolutely. And it wasn't just about the ionosphere and solar radiation. They also um, they also had a, a prototype weather satellite instrument on one of the Vanguard, uh, the Vanguard satellites planned for them. But there there is pressure for them to rush. And the first thing that happens is that there was a test vehicle planned for the first week of December in 1957. And what the lab winds up doing is they develop a miniature satellite vehicle. They call it the grapefruit <laughs> because the actual Vanguard satellite buses were about 20 inches and the grapefruit was much smaller. It was about eight or nine inches in diameter. And um, they develop the grapefruit and they call this a test vehicle because the original plan was just to fire all three stages of the rocket to prove that they could get the launch path uh-huh. and that all three stages would work as anticipated when they really launch a satellite. And so instead, they launch a test vehicle uh-huh. They try to launch a test vehicle in December. They add the grapefruit satellite onto it, which basically only has a tracking transmitter on it. And the rest is history, right? Like this is Flopnik. This is Kaputnik. (laughs) This is the launch that goes up in flames on, on television for the world to see. So, of course, the Vanguard team is crushed by this and they come under more pressure. Shortly thereafter, nationalistic concerns come into play. And it is determined mm-hmm. that the von Braun team will be permitted to enter into the IGY satellite portfolio. And so, <laughs> oh, and so, well, they, they, they managed to get a satellite up, the, the first U.S. satellite up. Um, and so when they enter into the IGY satellite. That was, uh, sorry to interrupt, that was Explorer, Explorer 1? Yes, Explorer 1. And so it's determined and Brown and his team who've been waiting in the wings anxiously for their opportunity to uh, to prove themselves are brought into the IGY program. And what happens is they reevaluate the manifest, the launch manifest of scientific instruments that were supposed to go up on Vanguard, because these things take, they they took years to design and test Uh and build and for, you know, systems integration for the whole satellite to work together. And this was all under NRL's supervision. And so then they begin working to transition hardware from what was going to be Vanguard payloads to the Explorer system, and one of the first uh, one of the first scientists to to pick up and uh, to move shop is uh, Van Allen. Van oh, Allen takes mm-hmm. his, his radiation belts experiment over to Explorer. So, what what was the reaction of NRL scientists and policy people to um, the Army coming in to cannibalize their Vanguard project and stick it on a an Army rocket? I mean, it can it couldn't have been very. They couldn't have been very approving of it. Well, you know, I find, I've, I've found documents from, from the National Academies of Sciences in which the main concern that's being voiced at this time is not so much who launches the payloads, but that the nationalistic space race powers that be recognize that implementing a crash program is not going to make this a more methodical and successful program necessarily yeah. right like you can you can unleash all the money and you can reduce the time but you know it, you've heard the you've heard the famous saying about faster better cheaper yeah pick two yeah right like <laughs> and so there are lots of pleas that are basically going out saying you know like like let's let's keep this methodical let's keep this practical and be thinking about the rate at which we're going and um, they, as you know they're under a lot of pressure to show that the u.s can launch you know like multiple successful satellites yes there was something of an animosity between the uh, two teams that dates back to the earlier days of von Braun's fantastic prognostications about about space flight and space exploration though 
Did uh, did Explore have a lot of components from Vanguard? I mean, what could Explore actually do? They they carried the scientific payloads that had been developed originally for Vanguard satellites. They carried their own microlock tracking transmitters, mm-hmm. the mini track tracking network that was used to track both the Vanguard and the Sputnik satellites was also used to track the explorers as well. After the the launch of Explorer 1, uh, the Vanguard program doesn't go away. It seems like it continues it continues on, right? The development of this uh, satellite uh, system which is much more complicated continues for what another couple of years. Uh, absolutely. They, they even extended the International Geophysical Year um, in order to accommodate more IGY satellite launches. And of course, you know, hmm. to the surprise of nobody, it takes longer than expected for them to you know, like be reducing the data and get information to the data centers and, and, and for everything to be reported back and such. And so they extend the International Geophysical Year into 1959. And so, uh, you know, one of the one of the things that we're not talking about here is the formation of NASA. Um, mm-hmm. So, so Vanguard bridges these earlier ad hoc efforts that were made in, in space exploration in the United States that were largely driven by DOD funds because DOD researchers were the ones who had the expertise in you know, launching and tracking and building uh, launch vehicles, right? And they're, they're asking these sorts of uh, national defense questions that, that I had described earlier. Yeah. I think it's important to understand that in the days immediately after World War II, when the army brought V2 missiles back to the United States, basically with the intention of reverse engineering and figuring out how to build missiles of their own, they approached the Navy and they asked them what they would think about basically collaborating on launching these 60 or so V2 missiles. And when they do, they begin discussing the possibility of, you know, if you're going to practice, if you're essentially going to practice designing and launching missiles, you might as well put a payload on it. And so Mm -hmm. this is when multiple scientific institutions, armed services labs, multiple armed services labs from the Army and Navy and eventually the Air Force, universities, many industrial partners partnered together in the upper atmosphere research panel, rocket research panel. And through this coordinating mechanism, they determined how they would share finite resources, right? Like if you have 60 mm. V2s, you've, you've only got at most 60 shots. And so they decide that they're all in this together and that if they're going to glean as much as they can out of these systems, they'll figure out ways that their skill sets can complement one another or how they can reduce undue duplication of effort in you know, the scientific questions that they're asking. And that's or, a NRL is doing that or is this beyond them? What, who's, who's no, do- this is... It's not, it's not run by any one federal institution. It's a voluntary, it's a voluntary group that's coordinating these mechanisms. It's accepted by the DOD as being kind of the authority of how to allocate huh. these resources. Yeah, that was a question I wanted to ask you, which is that, you know, the first time we talked about this a few months ago, you were saying that, like, this was unbelievably complicated to do. You're, you're working in all of these different uh, not only with new technologies like solar power panels, for example, which I think Vanguard is the first to use. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. But but also just like different departments of people who have to coordinate their work. And so I was wondering if you could talk about that. Just how did all of these different units of people figure out a way 
to put together this unbelievably sophisticated project, which maybe we take for granted now with, you know, launching, you know, the International Space Station and things like that. But it, it seems like it's a pretty remarkable thing. Some people want to hear that, you know, like the Cold War initiative or the space race drive made people work better together. But, you know, there, there are so many things about, you know, like like DOD contracting or inter-service rivalry and things like that. that are just kind of timeless issues. It, it's hard to talk about the ebbs and flows of those in a really broad way. But one thing that I, I, I did hope to emphasize while you and I were yeah. talking today was the fact that, you know, crucial partners in these earliest days, all the way back in the 1940s space exploration that was taking place, were these were these industrial partners who were there and had their own skin in mm. the game and were participating in this research. I think that there's a lot of shorthand used today about the notion of privatizing spaceflight with a dismissive air that because, you know, before NASA, it was the DOD and then after NASA, uh, after NASA's formation, NASA was then the driving force behind all space exploration. But I think that um, I think that it's really important. There were hundreds of contractors and subcontractors contributing to Vanguard, and this speaks to what you're saying about the complexity of these systems, right? About about yeah. planning things or making minor changes in one part of the system and how that that affects the systems engineering of the entire thing. We have IBM computers that are placed in multiple places for tracking the satellites. And, and you know, at that point in time, computers were, were, were generally leased. And so they had an ongoing relationship with IBM. RCA had actually taken a lot of the initiative in producing the individual solar cells that were used on satellites. And they had been partnering with the Army Signal Corps lab for many years working on these solar cells that would be used in a solar system for batteries, for powering satellites. You have GE and you have Martin that are producing individual stages that are on the three-stage Vanguard launch vehicle. Do you get the sense that these uh, private contractors are just working on a kind of pay for fee? Uh, I don't know what the, there's an expression for it. I'm forgetting what it is, but essentially being subcontracted by the government. Can you build X for us? Or do you think that there were that they had other interests in in these technologies. I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at, you know, because I'm talking now to retired engineers uh, from Hamilton Standard up here in Connecticut, and it's very clear to me at a personal level, like yeah, they're being told they need to design, you know, this spacesuit system, but they are so invested in it as a national project. I mean, they're really excited about it. They're coming in, you know, extra hours to work on it, and so it. It's very clear just talking to these individual people that there are, mo- there are many motivations for their work. And I, I was just wondering if you get any sense f- of that from the people who are working on Vanguard, or, or is that stuff even available to you? I don't even know. Um Unfortunately, I don't have any sources that really speak to the notion of, you know, how how passionate they were about what they were doing or how personally invested. But I can speak from, you know, like the top line, show me the money kind of way. And, you know, these, uh, there were multiple firms that had a strong stake in what was going on because they were confident that eventually they would be building and selling satellite systems to the DOD and the private sector themselves. Mm -hmm. So they viewed this as a really important opportunity to be first movers in these systems. I think all of the partners in Vanguard and the Sounding Rocket work before that recognize the importance of prototyping as an opportunity to get hands-on experience with brand new systems. 
And they're viewed as, you know, deliberately a learning experience. This is part of the process of getting toward applications satellites eventually Uh um, that followed. So from an institutional standpoint, they are truly long-term invested in this emerging space age that's coming to fruition. I talked about the Upper Atmosphere Rocket Research Panel. As as, As soon as Vanguard is approved for the International Geophysical Year, they changed their name to the Rocket and Satellite Research Panel. And um, I just want to read you some of the names of the, the, the industry representatives on this. We've got Convair Corporation, Ford Research Lab, General Electric was huge in this, Rand Corporation, which huh. I, I think that we would count that as a private uh, private entity. Oh, and General Electric shows up more than once. And these these are on the leading bodies of the rocket research panels. This isn't this isn't counting all of the the work that's going into it. So these folks are sitting at the same table as the universities that are providing a lot of the principal investigators for the scientific instruments and you know, like the Army Ballistic Research Lab, Air Force Cambridge Research Lab, and NRL. They're they're at the same table. I, you mentioned earlier that this is really kind of in the prehistory of NASA. NASA doesn't exist yet. And so many functions were taken over by NASA. Are there ways in which Vanguard expresses its Navy history, Navy culture? Um, I think that the most important connection between Vanguard coming to fruition and NASA as we know it today actually can be best teased out by looking at the origins and crucial role that the Office of Naval Research plays in this time period. So mm-hmm. as, as you know, the Office of Naval Research emerges, like the like at the Upper Atmosphere Rocket Research Panel, they emerge immediately after World War II during this, this zeitgeist of the sense that, you know, this, they just come out of the, the war, the, the physicist war, right? The so-called physicist war. And, yeah. and you have all of these new technologies that have changed the face of warfare. You have you have radar and you have atomic weapons. And, and so immediately after World War II, you have the strong sense that if the country continues to invest heavily in fundamental research, however we choose to define that, which is, can, be, can be tricky too, um, but, but if the country continues to, to invest in science, then the applications mm-hmm. will follow. Then, then you will stay ahead of your adversaries, right? And so the Office of Naval Research remains a key player in supporting science in the United States throughout the 1950s. NSF emerges and it takes them, you know, a couple of years to get to get their feet under them and gradually they find a, a sort of equilibrium in spending between ONR and such. This is NRL's parent organization, the Office of Naval Research. And so uh-huh. I think the important philosophy that carries over to NASA here is this willingness of the country to scope out funding for scientific research on the understanding that sometimes the scientists may not even be able to articulate precisely which weapon systems this will improve. One of the really important things that we have lost historiographically about NASA is that NASA was actually born of that same philosophy, right? Like when they when they cleave NASA off huh. In, yeah. in this in this emerging space race that is portrayed as a missile and satellite space race, when they cleave off NASA, they're defining this. Mm-hmm. In the earlier days, it's less about defining it as civilian for some parties, and it's more about defining it as a place for fundamental scientific research. Interesting. Yeah. And so 
so so one of the things that I spend a lot of time wallowing in in my dissertation because <laughs> we all wallowed a little bit uh, are the the thousand more than a thousand page multiple volume missile and satellite preparedness hearings in which uh, LBJ is basically grandstanding the fact that you know like like the United States is behind and that it's Eisenhower's fault and that and that you know like the parsimonious Republicans have have you know like kept us behind in the space race and um, key figures in the rocket and satellite research panel who had been working on sounding rockets and then working on the Vanguard program use their testimony as an opportunity to communicate to Congress that the formation of ARPA was a very important step for national defense and for the future of space systems, Mm -hmm. but that ARPA was insufficient because what they also needed was a line of support for space science research. Mm -hmm. And ARPA ARPA was not going to solve that problem. And the funding structures at, uh, as I point out my dissertation, the Weather Bureau, the funding structures at the NSF, the funding structures at ONR were were tailored to smaller and different research programs. And and NACA, of course, is is one of these is one of these institutions that are taken into consideration, the Atomic Energy Commission, all of these, all of these pre-existing traditional sponsors of pre-space age research. Um, were, were judged basically inadequate for this new this new problem that was faced, and so that's why that's where ARPA comes from. But multiple representatives from the International Geophysical Year come forward and they say that's not enough. It's not enough to throw a whole lot of money at the advanced research project agency. You need a place that's going to do the science to back that up. Since you were talking about Johnson and and some of the things that flow out from. Vanguard. I was wondering if you could talk about the legacy of the satellite. I mean, I know it's still up there, right? It is absolutely. It's still in. They estimate it'll be in orbit for about another eight hundred years, I believe. Oh, that's awesome. Um, but <laughs> well, um, so. <laughs> but uh, just in terms of its, I guess, its influence on or application to later satellites or different kinds of scientific projects or even the way that they're organized. What What do you think its legacy is? Well, the first the first legacy I, I already touched on is the testing and engineering regimes yeah. that were developed for these systems. There, there were there were small problems. There were definitely problems with the IGY satellites, but none of the scientific instruments proper ever failed in the IGY. Mm-hmm. Uh, the weather payload that's on Vanguard two doesn't the camera doesn't work properly because the orbital insertion had messed up the spin on the satellite. But all of the mm-hmm. the payloads actually did work, and so. When the Vanguard team is transferred over to NASA, they bring these, you know, at this point, decades of of, this this decade of experience with them from the sounding rocket years. And then, of course, Vanguard to NASA Goddard when it gets formed. And that's one line from for NRL's purpose. They actually retained a core of talent from Vanguard. And of course, they still have, you know, all of the the memo and technical reports that come out of this and a lot of the hands on lessons that have been learned by pulling together these space systems. And so in 1960, the Naval Research Lab launches the world's first reconnaissance satellite. And shortly mm-hmm. thereafter, they launch a trans-ionospheric communication satellite. And then soon thereafter that, they're working on prototype systems for the forerunner to GPS constellations. You can track, you can track these subsystems and you can track the careers of individual people from that IGY and sounding rocket experience directly into these new systems. And 
there's more work to be done there on this labor history element, uh-huh. talking about the value of in-house R&D for the DOD as well. So the, the idea of maintaining this talent as people work through their interdisciplinary careers. Angelina Callahan, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate this. This has been a pleasure. That's it for today. Make sure you check out Time to Eat the Dog's website and Twitter page for links to some recommended books on early space science and other exploration-related stuff. The Twitter page also has a link to Zabrat, the great band that composed our music. Please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, always feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs. That's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. See you next week.